All right. We'll start off with a quick word of prayer again about the word that we're going to study, but also I just, Paul was letting me know that uh, many of you may know uh, Peggy Collins, uh, Donnie's mother that's here in Perrigan. I guess she passed away. And uh, so we're going to go in prayer for that family as well, along with the word of God as we get ready to kick in this morning. So uh, I'll let you guys start off in silence to prepare yourself and then we'll... Uh, close out. Fathers, our hearts are troubled this morning for the family that has lost a loved one. And we, we know that, uh, that you are a God of all care. And we pray for Peggy and we pray for Donnie. And we pray for all of the family. Pray that your loving arms will be around them. That you'll help support them, care for them. Bring them a peace and a comfort that passes all understanding, Father. And uh, help us to just rejoice in, in you and who you are. And Father, for the message this morning as we break a, open your bread of life. Oh, thanks for giving me that because that's kind of what we're going to study today. And Father, we just thank you for this. We praise you. May our hearts and our minds and our eyes be opened up to the great truth that is revealed here. And may it motivate us to be better servants for you, Father. And may we carry this with us for the rest of our life. May it not depart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Amen. Jonah chapter 4. God's blessed us with an amazing Lord's Day. Slowly it's starting to turn a little bit. Instead of 90s, it's 80s. And at night we're 60s. And it's nice. We're starting to make a little bit of a turn to go into that fourth stretch now. And... Uh, Great day. So Jonah chapter 4, we're going to close this book out as well. And you know what? The first part of this, I'm just tossing away. It's gone because we got to get into the real stuff. God told Jonah, he said for them to go tell Nineveh 40 days is what you got and I'm going to overthrow you. Jonah did, the people repented. And so that begs the question in chapter 4. What happens next? What's going to happen now? So if you're there with me, or if, if you don't have a Bible or have one in front of you that's opened, uh, we'll have it up on the slide. Jonah chapter 4, let's read all of this together. And uh, I've chose the complete Jewish Bible to read from today. A few words may not match yours, but the reason I chose this is because of one special word that's translated throughout here, the castor bean plant. Because that's what planet was, it seems, from history and from the word that's used there. And the Jewish knowledge of it. So that's why I chose that. Because some say gourd, some say plant, some have different things. We just know God provided it. But I use this one because it seems to be in tradition with what it actually was. So Jonah chapter 4. They had repented and God relented at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4. But this was very 
displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed, Lord, didn't I say that this would happen when I was still in my own country? And that's why I tried to get away to Tarshish ahead of time. I knew that you were a God who is merciful and compassionate, who is slow to anger and rich in grace, and that you relent from inflicting punishment. Therefore, Lord, please, just take my life away from me, because it's better for me to be dead than alive. And the Lord asked him, Is it right for you to be so angry? And Jonah just left the city and found a place east of the city where he made a shelter and he sat down under the shelter in the shade thereof to see what would happen. And then the Lord God prepared a castor bean plant and made it to grow up over Jonah to shade his head and to relieve his discomfort. And so Jonah was delighted with that castor bean plant. But at dawn the next day, God prepared a worm which attacked the castor bean plant so that it dried up and then the sun arose and God prepared a scorching east wind and the sun beat down upon Jonah's head so hard that he grew faint and he begged that he could die saying I would be better off dead than alive and then God asked Jonah again Is it right for you to be so angry over the castor bean plant? And Jonah answered, Yes, yes, it's right for me to be so angry that I would even want to die. And then the Lord said, You're concerned about a plant? A castor bean plant that cost you no effort? It came up in one night? And it perished in a night. So, shouldn't I be concerned about this great city, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, not to mention all the animals? Now, I don't know about you, but this chapter and its ending strikes me kind of funny. You know, it's like a movie that just didn't end right, and you're like, what? There's got to be more to this. You know, you turn the page, and that's the end of the book. It doesn't keep going. But it just don't seem right. Well, after all of the excitement that we've had, chapters 1 through 3, with Jonah leaving, and getting on a ship, and the storm coming, and getting tossed overboard, going down to the depths of the sea, and seaweed wrapped around his head. All of these different things. And then the great fish swallows him up. And then he's three days and three nights, and then it gets spit up on dry land, and God told him to go to this city that's 75 miles in length, and go preaching to them telling them that in 40 days I'm going to overthrow them. After all of this, and then they repent. It's like, how do we make it exciting from here? It just kind of levels off. But then, then the Lord revealed 
the true plan behind all of this. So let's go back and see. Let's stick with what we do know and see what the Lord's going to reveal to us throughout all of this. Let's go back up there to verse 1. This was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. What was displeasing to him? That God forgave. That God forgave those wicked Ninevites that he didn't like. And he's mad about the grace of God. I don't know about you, but I can't get on Jonah. Because there's been times that I've been mad at God. I know you guys never have. Never got angry with him. Everything always goes your way and and with your family and your friends and with work and with life. So you've never been mad at God. Jonah was mad. We all, when we do get upset and a little angry though, we all what? Think we got a good reason, don't we? We all think that we've got a good reason for being angry at God. Well, he wanted to see him fry. He, he wanted, I don't know if you remember, it, it's kind of gone away with the age that we have now, but in my day when I was young and when I was in my 20s, they talked about the black box that the president had. You remember that? It never departed from him and it had like the nuclear option in it that it was like chained to him like James Bond and if he was traveling in the plane and something happened, well, he's going to open up that suitcase and push the button. It's kind of what Jonah expected and now it's kind of fizzled out from him. These emotions were building up within him. It said he was displeased very much and became very angry. And angry there, that's a word that means nostrils usually. Did you know that? The word for anger is nostrils. Because have you ever watched somebody when they get mad that their nostrils flare? (laughs) And then they... (laughs) The word is off. And it's the sound that you make when you're mad and it comes through there. And it came to mean anger. The nostrils flaring. This is how he was looking up at God with nostrils flaring. And God looks down upon him and he tells him, he said... This is the reason I left. This is the reason I went to Tarshish and fled to there. Because I knew this was going to happen. That you weren't going to do anything. Because of why. He said this. Lord, I knew. Yada. Do you remember Adam and Eve? And it says in Genesis 4 that Adam knew his wife, and she beget a son. It's intimate knowledge. It's not, I worked with him for two or three days, so yeah, I know who he is. No, it's intimate. Adam knew his wife. Lord, I knew who you are. I'm not a rookie in this thing. God didn't send a rookie to Nineveh to a million people. I knew about you. I know your intrinsic characters. I know that you're a God who is merciful. That word, the root, is translated in many places, the womb. And you say, the womb, why? Because who is more merciful and compassionate than a mother with maternal instincts for the one that she has birthed? 
So the word comes to mean the merciful, compassionate God. It's the God who birthed us and has that kind of mercy. I knew that you was this kind of God that has that motherly instinct over your people. And you're compassionate, you're gracious, you're slow to have your nostrils flare out. You're slow to anger. And you have rich covenant loyalty. And one day we're going to talk about God's covenants with us and through the Bible. But the main thing to know right now is when God makes a covenant with us, it's all relying upon who and what he is. He knows who we are and that we're unreliable. So when he makes a covenant with us, it's about him and his reliability and his ability to take care of us. And Lord, I knew you were merciful. You are compassionate. You have great covenant loyalty to your promises so whenever someone asks you for forgiveness through Jesus Christ who ran all the way through the Bible then you forgive I knew that you had that kind of great loyalty and I knew that you always forgave and relent then of those who ask of you in that vein so Jonah closes with that But Jonah is referring to something that he knew from God from way back. Exodus 34, all of those things, he was quoting Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, the children of Israel, who he's brought out of Egypt, get across the thing. Moses goes up and receives the Ten Commandments. God says, go down to that stiff-necked people because they're down there doing something right now even as I'm making a covenant promise to you with these Ten Commandments. Moses goes down and sees this orgy of things that's going on. He throws the tablets down, breaks them, tells the people off, makes them drink gold dust from that idol that they had made. And God... He pleads with God for them. And God says, make you two more tablets of stone and come up here in the morning and see me. So he goes up early before anyone's up. And he walks up there. And it says, God descends in the cloud up around there. And God surrounds Moses in chapter 34. And God says this. God speaking to Moses says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, who is compassionate gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and covenant loyalty and truth. I forgive transgressions, sins, and iniquities, yet I do not hold the guilty blameless. In other words, I forgive through the atonement process that I have developed all of your things, but to the guilty who will not seek that atonement, I still hold them accountable because they have not chosen to go through that. But God himself quoted those things about who he is and his character. Compassionate, merciful, great in all of these things. And so Jonah says, I know who you are. And I know what your character is like. And I knew that this was going to happen. But then God says in verse 4 to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Now look at, here's something funny. Look what verse 5 says up there. Look what verse 5 says in your Bible. When God says, is it good for you to be angry? 
it says that Jonah just departs and goes over to the east upon a hillside, builds him a lean-to, and he's going to sit down and wait, it says, for what God is, what's going to happen to that city. He gets the idea that God, that last part there, but I don't hold the blameless, the, those who are accountable blameless. He's thinking, well, maybe God's trying to tell me that I don't have a reason to be angry. Because maybe I'm forgiving them and a God of compassion, but maybe I'm still going to, you know, you've done the crime, you do the time type thing, as Beretta used to say. Maybe that's going to happen, so guess what? I'm going to build me a front row seat over here. And I'm going to sit here until that 40 days time is up so that I can watch and see the fireworks explode. Maybe I still get to see that. And so I'm thinking that's what's happening here. So Jonah goes up there. Now he says in verse 6 that God prepares something. One of the themes running throughout this book is God preparing. He prepared a storm. He prepared a fish. God's been preparing a man. Now, God's going to prepare three things in this chapter. And we're starting to get really good. It's the castor bean plant. My cousin, Sonia's dad over there, he usually grows a castor bean plant, doesn't he? Got a big old castor bean plant sitting over there with these big leaves. Okay, this plant grows up overnight, provides shade. It says it's the first time Jonah's been happy about something, this entire thing. That sun, evidently he's not a good builder and that lean-to has rays of sun coming, it's hot. This castor bean plant provides shade. He's happy for the first time. He's sitting there, he's enjoying that, getting ready for the show. But his joy is short-lived because you know what happens on the morrow? It says there in verse 7 that the Lord also prepared something else. He prepared a worm. And this worm, it says, attacked that plant and caused that plant to wither and to die. And so the next day as that plant withers and as it shrivels up and he's becoming unhappy, it says the Lord also prepared something else. He prepared an east wind that is called in those places a Scirocco wind. It was a devastating hot wind that started blowing like a convection oven on him. And then the sun started beating down through that lean-to again without that castor bean plant. And all of a sudden, he gets so hot, he's weak and he's ready to faint. And he just says, oh, wish it was better for me to die. None of us has ever said that to you either, have we? Oh, I'd, rather, I'd just as soon not be around. He gets so upset and so mad and so hot that he's ready to faint. And then the Lord comes to him again. The Lord did all of that because he didn't get it right. He thought the Lord might still be going to, to take his anger out on him. So now he's showing him something. He's using this as an illustration to show God's grace. And he's got to get him to get the point. So now here he is laying there in all of that agony. And he asks him again, Do you do well to be angry over the plant? He says, Yes, I do well to be angry. And you can hear him as he's laying there suffering. 
Even unto death I do well to be angry. And here's where we get going. Because God says, You took delight in a plant. The lowest of living kind of things. And you didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't hoe it. You didn't have any effort or personal stuff invested in it. And you became that attached to it. You cared this much for it. I care about people. Can you imagine the way I care about people in a way so much deeper than you cared about this plant? You You were upset when it perished. I am upset when people perish without the knowledge of me and my son. I have 120,000 babies and young'uns who don't know a right hand from a left hand. Now you know why I'm having grace upon these because you cared that much about a plant. Look how I care about them. And then it looks like from casual ending we're done, doesn't it? Looks like we're done with the story. But we're just getting started. Because something was revealed through this that I want to share with you that I I pray that we can grasp the true deep meaning of this. Jesus said to those who were standing around him that was always mocking him, he said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these, it's the Old Testament scriptures that speak about me and testify about me. So that's what this chapter is doing. And let's take a look at that. Every book of that Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. And now you're thinking, well, you know what a castor bean plant's called in like American terms also? The Palm of Christi, the Palm of Christ. So this plant was called the castor bean. is also known as the palm of Christi. The palm of Christ. Oh, that's one thing. But now, as I was researching all of these words and going through for nostrils flaring and covenant loyalty, got to verse 7. And then when I got to verse 7, it started coming through. It wasn't until I hit the word for worm that things started to really explode on what's happening in this chapter. Is there a slide there that talks about um, the, the two meanings of, of the words for worm? Try going back. Yeah, that one. Yeah, there we go. When I hit the word for worm, it wasn't the normal word. The normal word for worm in the Bible is that bottom one, remah, short definition worm. That's what you would expect, but that's not what is used here. The top word is used for the worm that God prepared. It is tolah, and its meaning is worm and scarlet stuff, and it's translated almost always in the Bible as crimson. It's the crimson worm. And so then things started beginning to get crazy because I said, okay, what's so special about this crimson worm and this word that I'm looking at? It's used 43 times. 35 of those times it's translated crimson or scarlet. But eight times it's translated a little different. A couple times it's translated referring 
as an idiom to a person, as an illustration to a person. And one of those times is our next slide of Psalm chapter 22, where it says there, Psalm 22 is the messianic psalm. If you've never read that, that's a part of our Berean challenge here this week to read that psalm. Because throughout Psalm 22, as David wrote it, it was also a messianic preparing for the way of Christ. It talked about his crucifixion. In it, it talks about the words that he said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far away from delivering me? Later on, it tells about him being pierced with his hands and his feet. And none of my bones were broken. I can count them all. This is the messianic psalm. Verse 6 is Jesus talking about himself. And what does verse 6 say? I am a worm and not a man. And the cold chills start going. Okay, what's this worm? What's, what's happening? Because there's a reason why God, the Holy Spirit, chose to use Tola, the crimson worm, and that attacked the plant instead of a normal worm. Now it refers to my Savior. So what's the tie-in? Because this crimson worm is the one that was used to make the dye for all of the crimson and red things that run throughout the Old Testament that represents the blood of Christ. The, the priest's garments. The things in the tabernacle that were scarlet in color came from this worm being crushed. It's used all the way through Rahab who hung a scarlet cord. It's used all the way through for forgiveness and the blood representing it. It's the sacrifice for sin. Now, to, to know even deeper on what's happening here in this illustration, you start looking at the life cycle of the tola, of the crimson worm. And when you start looking at this little guy up here in his life cycle, it is to represent a picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Because first things first, when the fullness of time comes, and this worm is pregnant, and it's getting ready to deliver its young, the first thing that it does is it climbs up a tree, willingly. It... It seeks out a tree and climbs up willingly. Usually it's the Kermes oak tree. That gives it its name because this little guy is called the Kermes vermilion. The redness and the Kermes of the tree. It's symbolic of its destiny because the Kermes vermilion climbs up the tree under its own accord. By its own choice and it climbs up and at this point there they go. And at this point, remember that our Lord went upon that tree called the cross willingly. No one made him go. He could have not went. He is God. He could have called 10,000 angels also to his service. He went willingly to the cross for us, for his children. And he knew that when he climbed upon that tree... That he wasn't going to come down until he said, it is finished and it is done. So then, once upon the tree, that crimson worm pierces the skin of the bark. Let me see the next slide. Yeah, you see that little thing coming out there? That he starts piercing the bark of that tree and he latches on with it and the sap 
begins to ooze out from the tree. She begins to secrete her redness from inside of her along with that sap. And that sap pastes her, cements her to that tree. And there is no going back. It is done. And it creates a red scarlet shield around her. It will never leave now. But that's okay. Because as she's secreting that fluid and that protective shield around about her forms, it's going to protect her children. That's going to be born to her. That way ants, spiders, predators cannot get to her children. So it starts to look like that. Do you see the crimson beginning to stain the tree underneath? Her blood is beginning to stain the tree upon which she is nailed to. Then, we are protected by the blood of our Savior, aren't we? And by the the shield of the Holy Spirit, so that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And then her body begins to swell up great, and the children are born inside of that. To find a way out of that enclosure, they have to begin feeding upon her living body. And find a way then to feed upon that for nourishment. And then to puncture through that and pierce it open to get out. And with that, I remember the words of Jesus. Given first in John chapter 6. That he is the true bread of heaven. Then he says this in verse 53. Most assuredly, I say to you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And my blood is drink indeed, and my flesh is food indeed. And I will raise Him up on that last day. My blood abides in me, and I in Him. And as living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so He also feeds me. And lives me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, and whoever eats of me shall never die. So now, the Last Supper, Mark fourteen twenty two, Jesus says this as they were eating, he took the bread and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take and eat. This represents my body that was given for you. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says the same thing about that night. He says that as Jesus was gathered together, that he broke the bread and said, This is my body, take and eat, all of you, that was given for you. Do this as a memorial, as a remembrance of what I did for you each week. So, the scarlet worm, as a picture of the worm of God that was given upon the tree... They both gave their life for their children, didn't they? So that the children could live. Zechariah, as, as those children eat through that flesh and that, that waxy thing. Yeah, that's the slide. As they begin to eat through that and to break through that and pierce to come out. I'm reminded of Zechariah 12.10. 
they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And then in John 19, one of the soldiers, as Christ was hanging on the cross and had gave up the ghost, to make sure that he was dead, what? Took his spear and pierced the side of Jesus and forthwith flowed out upon the tree that he was hanging upon, blood and water. The side gets pierced and what's left of the mama worm that represents now the worm upon the cross opens up and what's left over bleeds out upon that tree. And that blood never leaves. You can, rain hits it, whatever, it never leaves. It's there as a memorial of the sacrifice that that worm gave for her children. And upon the blood of that cross, the life that was given for his children is always there before the throne of God as a sign of the forgiveness and what was done in our life for us. And then, we've only just begun. Miss T, go back to the slide with the two white little... uh, Yeah. Something else. Here's something else that happens. In three days' time. Yeah. Three days. How long was, was our Lord in the tomb? Three days and three nights. In three days' time, something begins to happen. That red living thing, as it's pierced, begins to dry up. And as it dries, it turns white. It turns fluffy, it dries up, and then it begins to flake off like snow and blow out into the wind. And then, this next slide shows this word for tola, this worm used again in uh, Isaiah 1 and 18. It's translated this way, the way it most frequently is, as scarlet. Come, now. Miss T, give me the last one, please. Looks like a post with a sign. Yes. Isaiah 1.18. The word crimson in both these places is tola, the same word used for the worm that represented Jesus Christ. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as tola, as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, They shall be white as wool. The word of God was literally telling us hundreds and hundreds of years before that this worm and its life cycle represents everything about the Lord, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his forgiveness. And it's summed up right here. Though I once was scarlet and red, I shall be white as snow. He climbed upon that tree knowing that he was not coming down alive in the same form. In three days, his new resurrected body would finish the justice of God. He would arise as a new creature, the first fruits 
of who we are. And the Holy Spirit specifically used this word tolah and this illustration of the worm in Psalm 22 to represent the entire idea of forgiveness and what it does for us. And so God can there tell Jonah the palm of Christ that came up and gave you shade had to die so that you could understand my grace and the forgiveness that I give to you. And now you understand what Jonah chapter 4 is all about. It's about Christ dying for our sins. Buried, resurrected three days later to make them as white as snow. And Jonah, you liked shade and comfort. I like forgiveness. I like forgiving my people. So as worship team comes on back up and we close this out, that crimson worm climbed the tree willingly to give her life for the children. Our Lord willingly gave His life for us. And may we, as we partake of the Lord's Supper this day and every day, may we never take it for granted. May it always be this representation of what happened. To us who believe, it's like He told Nicodemus, you're born again. I have birthed new life into you. Though my sins were as crimson and scarlet, they have become white as snow through the blood of the Lamb, through the worm on the cross. May we never shun that grace. And if you are here, and you are not a Christian, if you've never named Jesus as your Lord, and you've not received this, I pray that you too will not take that for granted. And that this day will be the day that you decide to accept that grace that is offered and extended to you by not only the Lamb of God, but the one who was the worm of God who suffered and died upon that tree to give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power that is within the Word of God. The illustrations that you use from your creation to show and to teach us your marvelous grace. And not only that, your marvelous wisdom, your planning, your preparation throughout all of history. Father, may we allow this to soak in and may the Holy Spirit make it real to us and challenge us by what we've heard and discovered today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.